Welcome to the Medical Menemist Podcast, your source for memory techniques and accelerated learning in higher education. Now, here's your host, Chase DeMarco. Welcome back to part three of this recap. And this is going to be an exciting one. So I did not plan on making this many parts to this recap initially when I planned it a few weeks ago, but we have so much great material, so many more highlights, and I was really expecting that this is going on for a little bit longer, a few more episodes. Either way, it's a lot of great content for you. And this is the first part where we're really going to start digging into the accelerated learning techniques that we usually cover in a lot of our interviews. The first two really focused on evidence-based study techniques, note-taking techniques, more of the traditional learning aspects. So now in this part and the next part, we're going to focus on accelerated learning. So I usually attribute this to speed reading and visual mnemonics, memory palaces, these types of techniques that are less traditionally taught. And as well as I can tell so far, this is going to be the most comprehensive assessment of all of these types of techniques. It's from our expert interviews, my personal studies, and techniques that I've learned from personal tutoring sessions with other learners. So we're going to discuss some of the high yield concepts to get you remembering more, faster, and for longer. I also noticed in the past two recaps, there's been a few more audio hiccups than normal. I do apologize for that. I am not trained in any of these audio techniques, so it's a bit of a learning process. These types of episodes are a little different than the traditional interview style, a little bit more complex. So Hopefully, we'll keep improving on those audio qualities for you on future episodes. In this episode, we're really going to focus initially on insights into memory and why the brain works like it does. And this foundational conceptual knowledge will help us understand how our brains work and how to improve on our current memory skills. Then we're going to go into a little bit more on speed reading. I know we brushed over it a little in the first episode of this recap, episode 46, and we're going to delve into it from a few more experts' points of views. Then we're going to cover mind maps, which we also briefly touched about in part one of this, but from a nemesis point of view instead of an instructor's point of view, which might have less training and insight into these techniques. And stay tuned for part four, where we are going to really get into visual mnemonics, the creation of these mnemonics, the story method, and how to put these in the memory palace for long-term retention. All right, and to start this episode off with, let's see what memory is and how it works and what we can do about it from Cam Knight from mindlily.com. So I'll just kind of start off by saying one of the most important fundamental things that I teach, especially when I'm coaching, is that diamonds are forever, but memories aren't. So just because we come across a piece of information, no matter how important or valuable it is, doesn't mean that we're going to remember it. It's really important for your audience and people to realize that our mind is built to make us forget. And it's hard to imagine that, like, why would my mind make me forget? But it's true, our mind is designed to make us forget. And there's all sorts of complex reasons why that is. For example, most of us come across way too much information on a day-to-day -day basis. And majority of that information is useful, not for the long term, but just for the short term. And keeping all that information in long-term storage would not be beneficial. Unfortunately, we see that even when students understand this concept and that memory is a little finicky, there are obstacles in the way and misunderstandings that we might have that prevent us from taking on these new challenges and implementing new and more powerful, potentially, study strategies. So what are some of these misunderstandings we might have? For this, we're joined by Daniel Kiloff, a memory athlete and coach. 
And, and I think that it gives a lot of people the impression that memory techniques aren't useful in these kinds of sophisticated contexts. It's easy to understand why most of them are like this, because most of them are written by memory athletes. And of course, memory athletes are just memorizing very, very simple things. They're memorizing a lot. The volume, the speed is incredible, but they're still just memorizing simple strings of numbers or simple lists of words. It's easy to see why people get the impression that they sometimes do, that these techniques aren't suitable for more complex material. But as I say, you'll be disabused of that notion very, very quickly if you just kind of cast your gaze back in time a little bit, because these techniques originated and the, the use of these techniques historically were in contexts where the stuff being learned was very, very abstract and very, very sophisticated. Again, this is not the fault, I think, of memory students. This is a fault of memory athletes in the way that we often communicate. If the only impression that a person has of the world of mnemonics is of memory sports, you can hardly blame them for coming away with the impression that this is like very, very impressive, but pretty useless, right? And I do feel like instructors and students alike often feel like these techniques are really cool. They're awesome to watch or to read about or watch a YouTube video, but they're not practical. How can I use this right now to benefit my studies? And that's an obstacle we have to get over, and we try to through the episodes in this show. So now we understand that these techniques have historically been used for very powerful and complex material. So do we need to be memory whizzes to use these techniques? Do we need to have any special abilities? Not according to Alex Mullen of Mullen Memory. You know, we're, we're both not people who have any kind of special memories at all. You know, we, I, I just came across uh, a memory book that was about memory techniques and competitions when I was in college. So I picked it up when I was a junior in college uh, doing biomedical engineering, like you said. And I, you know, I just wanted to improve my memory for school. You know, I felt like I didn't really have a good memory and I, and it was kind of an intriguing thing to me. I was, you know, reading about all these things people could do. And I was just like, this, this can't be possible. Like there's, there's gotta be some sort of catch or something. And I got into it because of that book. It's called Moonwalking with Einstein by Joshua Four. I, you know, wanted to use the techniques for school. Like I said, I didn't really want to get into competitions, but I eventually did just because I started to practice the techniques and kind of, you know, fell in love with it and, and, and wanted to keep getting better and, and improve. Um, and eventually found myself competing in a competition. My first competition was the 2014 USA Memory Championship. I didn't really use it a whole lot for school, actually, funnily enough, because part of it was, you know, my, my courses were mostly engineering. And so they were more kind of math and conceptual based. And it was a little bit harder to apply memory techniques there. And then part of it was just I hadn't really figured out a good way to really apply it to school just yet. And so it really wasn't until medical school that Kathy and I both kind of sat down. You know, we had talked about the techniques a lot, obviously. And we, we kind of sat down and started to really, you know, figure out a way that we could apply memory techniques to medical school, you know, knowing that medical school is very, you know, memorization heavy, you know, a lot of information you have to, to take in and remember. I, I mentioned that it was kind of difficult for us at first, and we ran into a lot of roadblocks. So I, I would say that, you know, we pretty much started to try to use the techniques right out of the gate during our first year, our M1 year, and kind of struggle with it. I used it on biochem a little bit, tried to use it on anatomy. You know, I wasn't quite getting the results that I wanted to, you know, I would create some sort of palace and a couple, you know, days or, or you know, a week or two later, I'd come back and kind of the images were, you know, not really still there. And I was forgetting things. And basically, you know, it wasn't working too well. And so it took us a little bit of time to kind of figure out how to actually use them effectively. So it probably wasn't until the end of the first year, getting towards the end of the first year, um, that we felt like we kind of hit our stride with the technique pretty effectively throughout the second year and especially leading up to, to preparation for the step one exam, the USMLE exam. And then, you know, have been kind of using both memory techniques, you know, throughout the the last, you know, year and a half or so as a clinical, as clinical med students, but then also, you know, just kind of branching out more into general learning strategies that have been shown to be effective. As a current medical resident and a multiple world memory champion holder, 
it's interesting to note that even Alex had difficulties with implementing some of these techniques into medicine. There were no good instructions back then, and he had to really try to figure it out on his own. And it was very different from his memory champion training with the different types of material that have to be covered and the complexity of it. So those are some of the topics that we try to cover in this show and bridge that gap from these techniques to medical training. So here's what four times U.S. champion Nelson Dellis has to say about the brain and memory. I've worked closely with some neuroscientists who, you know, say that when you train your memory, you grow the size of your hippocampus. And then also, as you get older, your hippocampus shrinks. It's just natural part of the aging. And this is kind of something that can help uh, bring out Alzheimer's. It's not the only factor, but it can help. The argument goes is that if you train your memory, you're fighting against that natural age shrinkage of your hippocampus. Because I learned this even after grad school, just finishing grad school is when I learned this stuff. And it's like in grad school, I was going into grad school or into my undergraduate, things would have been totally different. Not that I did bad or anything, but it would have made my life easier. <laughs> I definitely agree with that sentiment. I've mentioned several times on this show and other interviews I've done with other people's podcasts where I didn't really come across this material and really dig into it until about the beginning of my fourth year in medical school. Had I known more about these accelerated learning techniques and visual mnemonic techniques and how powerful creating your own can be, I would have implemented them much sooner and would have better techniques for you now. Everything comes from playing around with it, learning, experience, play. So I encourage you to play around and try these out as soon as possible. You might hit a couple of rough patches at first, but you will constantly learn and improve on your skills. There is no such thing as perfection. You just become more variable with how you can implement the same techniques in different scenarios. And if you too have a bad memory like I do, and like Alex Mullen and Nelson Dellis have said too, well, that might not be a bad thing, according to Dr. Barbara Oakley. When you're first learning to back up a car, your working memory is going crazy. It's got all this information. But once you've created that subroutine, that sort of set of links of how you back up a car, all you have to do is think, oh, I want to back up a car. And you're attentional octopus reaches and grabs that set of links. So when you're learning in medicine, for example, you may not be able to hold a lot of information in mind, but if you practiced, you've created some sort of subroutines that you can reach out to and make connections with, with your, your working memory, and you can still do very well. In fact, in some ways, you can do better. Research has shown that those with poor working memories are not only often more creative, but they're often able to make elegant simplifications that the person with a really good working memory simply cannot see because they don't have any need to. I mean, if you think back to some of your worst instructors ever, your worst professors, they often were individuals who had very good working memories. And they'd say things like, well, see, then you do this, you do this, this, and that connects with this, and this is, and, and they've got it all in their really good working memory, and you're lost. So oftentimes, an instructor who doesn't have as good a working memory will be able to find simplifications to be able to kind of make everything fit more easily into your own limited working memory. And you can understand things in a, actually a simpler and more elegant way. I love that advice. So there might still be hope for us yet. Those of us with bad memories can become very creative and that extra creativity 
really helps to build on these mnemonic techniques. Of course, we'll get into more detail about visual marker creation and visualizations, these visual mnemonics, in the next episode. But first, I want to hear from Brad Zupp, another great memory athlete with a lot of productivity and memory techniques and skills that we should be aware of and should think about and really help to explain how to optimize our brain's ability to pay attention and to remember and take a stepwise manner in our learning. I turned 40 started walking into rooms and not remembering why I was there, forgot things all the time. And I thought, oh my gosh, you know, 40s, any age is just supposed to be a number. But as it turns out, I was losing my mind. It scared me. So I got the memory book out. I kept it a small book. It was valuable. It helped me before. And I started seeing, can a regular guy actually learn how to remember better? Not just languages, but day-to-day stuff. And it didn't help as much of the day-to-day stuff, but as I exercised my memory, I found that my day-to-day memory improved. And as a way to kind of double check and see if I was actually improving, I thought I need like a test or something I do on a regular basis. And I'd remembered an article from years before about a memory competition. I entered, did okay for not really training. This was a definitive black and white way of saying, here's how much I memorized, how fast I memorized it, here's the score, this is how I'm doing. When you have positive feedback like that, it's easy to keep improving. Positive feedback is very important to increase our motivation and make sure we stick with a project or a new skill we're trying to learn. But how do we actually divide this up from things like memory skills for competition and actual studying? I look at it, there's two routes to take. One is learning memory techniques and applying them right away. So you learn, you know, the memory castle technique or the association technique or whatever, and you open your textbook like I did with the Japanese textbook and you go, okay, well, this is how I'm supposed to do it. Here are the words I need to memorize. Um, Let me give it a shot. So you're learning by doing, and some people respond really well to that. Another approach is taking up memory improvement as, as a sort of hobby or an additional way to improve other areas of your life. So like if you know if you're a runner, maybe you you know lift weights or do squats or something to improve your leg strength so you can get better at running or biking or you know say you do yoga so you can be a better tennis player. You're doing something to make the important thing better. And and that's really what I recommend people try if if they're serious about it, if they've got a lot of stuff to learn. Learn memory techniques to train your memory. So that when it comes time to study, your mind knows better how to focus and better how to make those associations quickly and store those images in a memory palace. If you're just trying to do it while you're learning, like I need to learn this boatload of material, all the bones of the hand, and I'm going to do this and I'm going to learn a memory palace at the same time, I'm going to learn association at the same time, it gets a little bit overwhelming. I look at it as do something like yoga to improve your tennis or work out with weights to improve your bicycling, that type of thing. There's a learning curve to everything in life. When we first start out, we walk. We walk to first grade or we walk to second grade if we if we live close enough to go to school. But eventually we go, you know what? I want to get around more. I want to go further and explore. We get older and we learn how to ride a bike or we learn how to bike, ride a bike earlier, but then we get permission as we get older to ride further and further from home. You know, learning to ride a bike takes time. 
It takes effort. It takes skill. But we do that because we want to go a little faster and a little farther than we can do walking. And eventually we realize, well, this this bike thing is great, save the planet, but I need to drive hundreds of miles for this thing. So I'm going to learn how to drive. These are natural progressions. We don't really think about, well, there's a learning curve here. Should I learn how to ride a bike or shouldn't I? Or should I learn how to drive or shouldn't I? We just, we just do them because it's things we do in life. But you don't need to learn how to ride a bike. You don't need to learn how to drive a car. I mean, you can walk almost everywhere. So why bother? Well, because it can get things done faster. I definitely agree with him. There is a learning progression throughout all of our learning, through primary, elementary school, up through high school, and again through college, undergrad to grad school. We need to learn different skills in order to progress, in order to retain different quantities of information. And similarly, we can train our brain in different categories, in different skill levels, from walking to running to riding a bike to driving. And like he says, doing a little bit of training every day, whether this is your flashcards or training in visual mnemonics, doing a little bit of practice every day is how we really add this habit, how we make it useful and applicable to us, and not just a tool for one particular task. We still have a few more highlights on how the brain works and how we should think about learning before actually getting to the learning techniques in this episode, but you can check episode two and three for Alex Mullen and Kathy Chen from Mullen Memory, episode four with Nelson Dellis, episode 10 with Dr. Barbara Oakley, 26 with Brad Zupp, and all of their related links can be found in the show notes for those episodes. Now, we haven't heard from Abby Marks Beal in a while, so let's see what her thoughts are on memory and learning. So I talk about this thing called the gear shift. And if you look at your hand, and I use, I use a hand as an analogy, that we have five built-in gears. And so if you look at your thumb and your first finger, those are gears one and two. And so those are the gears that are the slower gears of any vehicle. And this is where most people are stuck because they've never learned from school. No one taught them unless they took a course how to get to the gears three, four, and five, which are the middle finger, fourth finger, and fifth finger. So I, I talk about these five gears and knowing how to shift amongst those. So going into first gear is great when you're memorizing something. But when you're first learning something, you shouldn't be in the memorizing phase. You need to be in like maybe three, gear three, when you're just, you're looking at the main overview, you're getting the concepts. And then when you study it, you go down to one. You can't study all material as if you're going to remember every single bit of it for all eternity. You have to pick and choose. There's just too much information in medicine and other graduate level programs. Knowing how to switch gears, how to go from a fast gear, an overview, skimming type of gear into a more focused gear can really help you limit the amount of time you spend on certain material. But if we do want to memorize certain materials, what are some tips that we could use right now? Again, joined by Jared Cooney Horvath. As human beings, we can tie vast amounts of information to incredibly small, simple symbols. And the idea being that if you can chunk all that information into that one symbol, congratulations, all you have to do is access that symbol and all the facts come with it. Uh, the deeper, con we call this conceptualization, but instead of building a concept, say, anatomy, you're building a concept that says scribble or triangle or blue square. And then you're just tying as many facts into that concept as possible. And so in that sense, yeah, before you go to bed, you recall that concept and then that pulls up all the facts. That type of recall, that type of visual linking, huge for memory boosts. That's if you can organize things like that, congratulations. You can stuff an encyclopedia in here without taking up much space at all. 
for two years, we changed the medical program into a problem-based program. So from your very first day, well, you're getting symptomology, you have to diagnose it. And what happened, we, and I don't know why they didn't think about this in advance, is people weren't going anywhere. They weren't learning anything. They were having a good time, you know, talking about symptoms and diagnosis. But at the end, when you asked them about a disease, they really had no clue what was going on. So we realized, okay, you can't start on those deep problems. So we since pulled it back and now we have two years of straight learning. There's your dissections, there's your book work, there's your learning. And then we move into problem-based. And now you see understanding conceptualization going through the roof. So front end with that, the facts, then move into the deep concepts. I'm fascinated by what he just said. And that really goes against the, I guess, common misconception that we should be focusing on understanding, not on memorization. But without memorization, it's really difficult to get to those higher levels of comprehension and understanding. And by using accelerated learning techniques, such as visual markers, such as these visualization techniques, we can memorize so much more with very few triggers, with just a single image. You can remember dozens and dozens of facts. This is the strength of accelerated learning techniques as I'm defining them in this episode. And you can always add to your visualizations in the future, gaining stronger mental representations of the material. Here's more from Daniel Kilov and how we can use these techniques in very generalizable ways to boost our comprehension. There are a whole lot of memory techniques and there are a whole lot of, they sort of exist at different degrees and levels of sophistication, right? So I think that even some sort of very simple, you know, what, what some people call like keyword mnemonics or sometimes called the substitute word method, you know, these kinds of things I think are useful at every stage of education. If you pick up a book on memory techniques, those techniques would help you just kind of destroy in high school. But of course, at a kind of graduate level or even at an undergraduate level, you know, a lot of the material we're learning is kind of a lot more sophisticated and a lot more abstract. And there you need to move beyond these sort of simple atomic techniques. You need to start building, really, if you want to be sort of competent at using memory techniques in these domains, you have to start building more sort of sophisticated systems. And lastly, in this section, Hoda Mustafa. Memory serves as kind of the foundation for the pillars of knowledge that you build. So if you don't have that foundational knowledge, it's very difficult to build something that's strong and that can persist and that can continue and sustain through your career. So these are solid memories. These are long-term memories. But the learning process, for example, I find a tool such as mind mapping or concept mapping very, very useful because it helps you visually recognize information and place it in your mind in a sense that seeks connections and it becomes much easier to memorize information. I always recommend that students for every topic, for every subject, for every chapter, they try and write it out, produce their own concept map, which is a visual representation of their understanding of the topic, and then add on to that the information that they need to know and they need to be able to recall in different assessments and at the same time in order to be able to build a solid understanding of the topic. So mind mapping is very powerful. Concept mapping, which is very, very similar, is very powerful because it allows you to visually represent your understanding of the topic, but it also gives you a quick way to Revise and recall information instead of reading through, you know, 30 pages, you can look at two pages of something that's visually represented, whether it's a mind map or a hierarchical map or a cyclical map or algorithm of some sorts, like a yes, no, positive, negative kind of algorithm kind of thing. There are different ways of doing it. 
Again, we hear another instructor's point of view on the potential usefulness of mind maps. And we'll get back to this section in a little bit with a mind map master. But first, you can check all of these episodes at freemeded.org slash podcasts. Episode 27 for Abby Marks Beal, 28 for Jared Cooney Horvath, 30 for Daniel Kiloff, and 37 for Hoda Mostafa. So hopefully you will agree at this point that memory is foundational to our knowledge, to our understanding, and you need to be able to recall this information at a moment's notice in order to use it effectively. So before we get to our next section on speed reading and then mind maps after that, I just want to say if you haven't yet checked out my other show, One Minute Preceptor Podcast, What's Wrong With You? Get over there, download the episodes. I want to get some feedback for season two before it comes out. Let me know what you think about it. Okay, but there is a little bit of new news that I want to let you know about, the Online Medical Education Summit. This is something I've mentioned briefly before. It's an upcoming virtual summit. It's a free event for students and allows you to see what some of the top names in medical education resources have in store for you. Personally, I'm glad that we here don't focus on content because the process and skills development is, in my opinion, much more important and will always remain relevant. And now with the change in step one to pass fail, you can see what some of these companies are doing to continue adding value to you, the students. We'll definitely have more information coming on future episodes. And if you want to stay informed, go to freemeded.org and register for an account. We'll add you to, we'll add all website registrants to the newsletter, to the newsletter so you can keep updated. Now, speed reading is a little difficult to do in this audio format, and we did cover it in brief details in part one of this mini-series back in episode 46. Go check it out. And here we're going to continue with some more details from speed reading expert Howard Berg and an example that he has for us. The secret to reading fast is in a word, it's called schema. Schema is what you know before you begin to learn. It's why you could read a medical book more easily than a novice because the words, the, the science that's there, you've gotten acclimated to it and you become accustomed to seeing certain terms that other people would not even be able to pronounce. Pick a familiar text, read for one minute the way you normally do and, at the, and time yourself. At the end of the minute, put a little line in the margin when you finish. That'll be in the first chapter. Now you have a measurement of how far you can go in a minute. Now go to the second chapter. I want you to go one line at a time using your left hand, going from the left to the right margin, one line at a time with your eyes following your hand. And here's the thing, as fast as you can comprehend. As long as you know what you're reading, go quicker till you don't, so you discover where your ceiling is. And then slow down just enough that your comprehension comes back. And for five minutes, go with your hand one line at a time across the page, completely across, reading at your peak comprehension rate. Then go back to the first chapter where you initially tested yourself and do it a second time for a minute, but this time with your hand. And you're going to be amazed. You'll go about 20 to 40% further just doing that one single change. So that's a quick little test that you can do at any point. Grab a book, a magazine, or even an article online and use that technique really quick just to measure where you're starting off from. What's your current reading speed? From there, you can implement certain techniques to slowly ramp up your reading. Even if you get twice as fast as you currently are right now, that's a huge improvement. Here are some tips from Abby Marks Beal and her Rev It Up reading class and a definition of speed reading. 
What it is, in my opinion, is it's a set of active, mindful, and conscious strategies that allow you to get what you need quickly from any reading material in an efficient and an effective manner. That's my definition. It's not reading everything and not understanding anything. Right now, the average reading speed of the average person who graduates from high school is around 250 words per minute. That's average. Now, medical students, I'm not sure exactly. I've not worked directly with medical students. I've worked with law students. I've worked with other, you know, milieu, but not specifically medical students. So I don't know what their average is. But believe me, after 30 years of teaching, I'm going to say the average is 250. Now, look at look at your page of materials that you have to read at 250 words per minute. You're not getting far too fast. At 250. So you have to have effective strategies. Like number one, like I mentioned earlier, every chapter started from an outline. So there's an outline. Go find it. Find the outline first. That's part of the survey, I guess. If you look at, you know, SQ3R, it's like find that outline to get the main ideas, you know, first. So that is one of the ways to do it. Developing one's reading skills before you go into any advanced degree or even, you know, especially medical school is probably the most important thing you can do because reading is the mother of all study skills. If you are good at reading, you're going to be good at learning. If you're not good at reading, it's hard to be good at learning. As some of you might know, if you've heard past episodes or listened to me on other shows, I am a terrible reader. I'm pathetically slow at reading when I'm doing reading in my normal fashion, when I'm not focusing on speed reading techniques. And you do have to focus on these. This is not how you read when you're doing so for luxury, when you're reading something interesting to you innately or that great graphic novel next to your bed. But for studying, they can be implemented very effectively. Here are some methods that Abby suggests and how to get rid of subvocalization, one of the worst detriments to speed reading. So when I talk about reading actively like and mindfully, what I'm talking about is first setting your intention, why you're reading it, what do you need it for? And then about using your hands or a card are very helpful if it's physical material or adapting it to on screen. But basically the concept is like this. Take all these words that you're looking at and trying to focus your attention on where your eyes need to be. And using a hand, your hands or a card will do that. I'll give your listeners my favorite one and the one that I share everywhere. It's called the white card method. So if you take a blank white card, like a three by five, four by six blank, it could have lines on it if that's all you have. And what you do is you put it on your reading material. When you're reading, think about this. If you pull the card down the page, what's still exposed is what you've already read. So it gives your brain this other opportunity to not get it the first time to not trust your brain. And so it's kind of like, oh, I can go back. I can reread. I feel safe. But you're also blocking where you're going. So to use a white card appropriately and really effectively is to take that card and put it above the line that you're reading and have it push you down the page and it's covering what you've already read. So the times you lift that card to double back should become a lot less over time because you get it the first time. So it focuses you line by line going straight down the page. And if you don't have a blank card, use your pinky. So take your hand and kind of like do a, how do you do this? Like a hang loose sign. A hang loose thing. <laughs> and so take your pinky in the hang loose and just kind of go from the top down. So your pinky becomes the way to read. Some pacers can be using your finger on the page, but what I want to avoid is if you go side to side, some people end up pointing to every word. And that to me is, that's like sounding it out, hearing in your head. It's a very slow way to read. So what I suggest is that you take your finger and put it on like the left margin and the right margin, if you can, or just the left or just the right, but I like both margins. And you basically take both fingers at the same time and go down and your eyes ricochet off your fingertips. So you're framing the column with your fingers, your index fingers only pointed up, gently 
pulling down the page. Subvocalization is also called mental whispering. And it's basically when you talk inside of your head uh, and pure subvocalization is reading every single word that your eyes are seeing. It's sounding it out, hearing it in your head. And subvocalization uses two parts of your body that technically you really don't need when you read. So when you read, your eyes should look at the page, you should know what it says, and it should go straight to your brain. But when you subvocalize, a lot of times it's almost like you have to sound it out with your lips. And sometimes you see people move their lips, but you don't even have to move your lips. And then it's like you have to hear it and then you understand it. And so we have to almost be deaf or mute, deaf and mute, technically, in order to really be a good reader, because you have to not be sounding it out, hearing it in your head all the time. So the thing that people have to know is that subvocalization is the way that people have learned how to read, sound it out, hear it in your head. And so when you subvocalize, it slows you down, but you will always subvocalize some. So don't think you're going to get rid of it completely. The faster you read, or as you speed up your reading, the less you can read every single word. And so speed is one of the ways to reduce. One one is to be aware of it, and the second is to start reading faster. And using your hands or a card is one way to do it. I also suggest for people that subvocalize to start reading keywords or phrases. And that's another you know way to get content quickly with good understanding. Keywords, again, are three letters or more, and they're bigger words, most important words on the page, whereas phrases are groups of words that form a thought. And so you can learn how to group things together. It, it's all, all dependent on how you think. And I definitely do that. I subvocalize all the time. It's my natural way to read, as it is for most of us. As we're taught to read out loud in primary school and elementary school, it's thought that that becomes our natural way, our normal, comfortable method of reading. So awareness of that and a couple of tips and tricks can get you to much faster reading. And lastly, for this section, we're going to be joined by Lev Goldentouch from keytostudy.com. With speed reading, you need to be really accurate, uh, different kinds of cooking. So when you come to speed reading, you have a certain way of learning different skills, and you need to learn them in that way. Otherwise, you will not be able to learn them again with uh, equal accuracy. And people are impatient and people are jumping back and forth. Some people are not confident enough to continue on their own. So it's really something where coaching helps. And there are very few people who can help with that. Now, the concept starts from uh, being good at remembering things. Then at the next stage, you need kind of to remember everything that you read because you need to understand what it means to understand something so that if later you will stop understanding something, you will be able to catch yourself. So we increase your understanding to the maximum and we do allow some very minor degradation as you speed up, but minor degradation only. Uh, Reading and remembering everything is a little bit uh, tiresome. And this is something that people do for a couple of weeks. Then they want to start reading faster. Uh, They can start reading faster and still remember everything. And then there is a limit which is called subvocalization limit. At some point, we are able to say things aloud and remember them. And then it's easy to understand. We can say things in our head faster than our body can move. So we can speed up a little bit, but then we climb up with uh, some kind of information barrier. So to overcome this barrier, your understanding needs to be purely visual. 
Now, there was an event going on when we were hosting the second part of this interview, so there's a bit of noise in the background, but basically he's saying that his way differs in remembering long-term being related to visual memory. Back to these visual mnemonics. And these are some recommendations that he holds for it. Now, to get to purely visual understanding, you do need some kind of brainstorming before that. So we do teach pre-reading or something like that so that you can generate this brainstorming so later you can understand something from purely visual understanding of things. And then you start visualizing everything that you read automatically. Once you get there, your reading speed is about uh, eight times higher than the reading speed of a regular person. But uh, to really go above that, you need to train your eyes uh, certain techniques of how to move on the page. If your eyes are jumping, your eyes will get tired very fast. If you do not move well enough, if your peripheral uh, vision is not wide enough, you will not be able to cover enough. Once your eyes can uh, move uh, fast enough, you can uh, probably read at uh, 1,000 words per minute, maybe more. The next limits are harder to overcome and we do not teach it. By using pre-reading and going over some of the key points, highlighted words, and chapter topics in a book or a script or whatever your reading material is ahead of time can allow you to start thinking about creative ways to interpret that material. What is it asking? What visuals can I attach to it? This is before you actually know the material in the book you're reading. Then you can later use this creativity to create visuals, to remember the concepts much quicker than other forms of speed reading, according to Lev. You can find out more from his book, The Key to Study Skills, as well as episode 33 and 35 of this show. Abby Marks Beale, again, is in 27, and Howard Berg in episode 5 and 6. And before we begin our last section on mind maps from a master in mind maps, I want to recommend that you go to freemeded.org slash medstudent, and there you can download our free PDF of a bunch of tools and graphic charts and representations that you can use to start personalizing your own training right now. And if you feel so inclined, you can buy our full book, Read This Before Medical School, at that link as well. It can also be purchased on Amazon or your online bookstore of choice. Now, in part one, we discussed mind maps a little bit from an educator's point of view and how some of them liked it, some didn't, or maybe only in certain circumstances. But here we're going to hear from someone that was professionally trained. He is a Tony Buzan trained mind map expert. And learning from someone that has a little bit more of this foundational knowledge in these topics and these skills might be able to shed some light on how we can use them. So here is Barry Mapp to discuss mind maps in much greater detail. Now, the myth of left brain, right brain, you know, we've known for a long time and, and the science hasn't changed, is that we have skill sets, if you like, on both sides of the brain. We know that um, language is mainly rooted on one side. We know that our spatial processing is mainly rooted in a skill set on, on the other side. We've known that for a long time. What went wrong and what is the pseudoscience is the, pers- the, the idea that these are personalities so that people are starting to be described as left-brained or right-brained, which is completely wrong. That is a myth. We're both-brained. I see the left and right brain skills not as learning preferences, but learning habits, learnt habits. So people who might be described as left brain are those that continually use and practice the skill sets that are based on the left side of, of the brain and those that are more 
what we might call right brain are those that practice and therefore have the habit of using the, the right brain skills. So when it comes to learning, it makes learning easier if you go big picture first and then you start to focus down um, on the detail. And one of the things that a mind map does, it puts all the essential elements in the center and all the detail towards the periphery. And so it teases those things apart. And that helps the brain to navigate information. Mind mapping is much more a thinking tool than it is a memory and studies tool. Every medical student, in my view, would benefit about thinking more about what they're being taught. So once you start to, to mind map, it is engaging a lot more of your thinking potential um, on topic. So it might help us to take a broad view of the material first before getting into the more narrow details. And organizing them in a creative way, such as a mind map, can help get the creative processes and the logical processes working together on this problem, on this solution, on the topics at hand. But how do we go about actually setting these up? The first mind map that a medical student should create once they understand purpose of mind maps is a mind map of the whole curriculum, if you like, the whole topic that they're needing to learn. They need to go to a higher level of abstraction. And the thing with the, the brain is that, uh, well, you know, this associations is what we tap into when, when we're using any memory techniques. Generally, you associate one thing with another. So the more you're able to embed medicine into all these other things which have touched your own life and is touching the lives of family and friends, that gives a much bigger framework for memory and recall. Generally, um, you, you get the most benefit if you go down two levels. So if you've started with an overall mind map that, about well-being, of which medicine is one of the branches you want to start creating finding the detail you want to start mind mapping the detail but medicine is too early so you'll have some sub branches on medicine so you go down what i call two levels so instead of going to medicine you then might go to one of the big areas which might be say uh, gut it might be heart so then you can start mind mapping from that level so these topics are, of course, very important and making different levels, a level above and a level below your main point of interest. But why is it so powerful? It taps into spatial. We have a visual spatial working memory or a spatial processing working memory, which is, is quite powerful for helping us remember stuff. And we, we don't use that when we're looking at stuff in the portrait mode. So when we're viewing lists, we don't need that spatial processing. So we don't use it. So the thing is with a mind map, because it always puts the data when done properly, it puts it in landscape mode, um, we can maximize the use of what is actually three working memories, the spatial, the visual spatial, um, and the numeric verbal. And there it is. That's the key. When we're using any kind of visual mnemonic, whether it be mind maps or more intricate visualizations and memory palaces that we'll discuss in the next episode, this spatial memory is a strong, strong aspect of it. So not only can we remember visual cues much better than text, but the spatial cues, remembering if it's on the top or the bottom, the left or the right, 
can add to our memory of the topic as a whole, as compared to lists of orders or outlines or something along those lines that really just don't intrigue our memories and our senses, and they won't stick out as well later on. This is something that Cam Knight, author and creator of MindLily.com, seems to agree with. But more or less, mind map is a different way to take notes. It differs from the standard method of line-by-line note-taking, where you start at the top of the page. With mind maps, you don't start at the top of the page, but rather in the middle or center of the page. And instead of noting information line-by-line, you spread out like a spider web. A good analogy for a mind map is an octopus. So the head of the octopus is the center of the map, and then the arms spread out in all directions. And if you can imagine within each arm, other arms extending, kind of like how a tree branch has many smaller branches, then you can kind of get a good visual representation of what a mind map looks like. So the head is the center, the first level arms are the subtopics, and then the second and third level arms are the lower level topics. But I do want to rip down one of the things you said about mind mapping being like a form of location-based memory. And it totally is. You can think of mind map as a memory palace, but instead of using a physical location, the mind map is the location and all the different branches and sub-branches serve as a loci. And the rest of these interviews can be found at episode 40 for Barry Map and 41 for Cam Knight. Now, before we finish up this episode with the key points, the key takeaways from our interviews, I want to let you know that I am trying to put together a free email course as we speak, and I'm not sure when this will be out yet, but if you want to know when that'll come out, when the Online Medical Education Summit, and when other events and activities are going to be live, please go to freemeded.org and sign up for our newsletter. If you have been to the website lately and notice a few pages are not acting as they should, they're a little uh, little mixed up, well, that's because first off, I'm not a web designer, but I do what I can when I can. If you have these skills, web design, WordPress development, or anything similar to that, please shoot us a message. Especially with step one now being pass-fail, everyone is going to need a few extracurriculars on their CV, and you can write this down on yours. So join the team at freemeded.org. I don't really think students should worry too much about making sure that they're using the strategy in necessarily the most optimum way. Just using them and practicing with them and then making adjustments as you see fit is going to be really, really helpful. And, you know, switch it up. You don't need to do all of the strategies all the time. Really just adding a little bit here and there is going to be really helpful. We might have used this clip in the past, but it is still very valid. You have to mix things up. Use this inspirational quote to help you mix up your strategies, try new techniques, add more tools to your toolbox. All right, now the key takeaways for this episode. One, if you haven't seen it already, Google the forgetting curve. See what the image is like and how you can forget almost everything in just about three days if we don't use memory tools and other strategies to remember longer. Everyone, including memory champions and memory athletes I've interviewed, struggle with memory. But with certain developable skills, we can all make great improvements. We can cover more material more rapidly with some speed reading techniques, as long as we still remember the material later on. And we can also use mind maps as a very useful creative avenue to study and to get a broader picture, but then also to focus in on certain details. 
Hopefully, these creative techniques will help motivate you, increase your motivation, help you study longer and in new and fun ways. We'll cover more in visual mnemonics and how to associate these mnemonics together and how to store those images in memory palaces in the next episode. So for now, enjoy, be healthy, and keep pushing forward. You got this. Don't forget to check our sister organization out at Find a Rotation. Currently, the Facebook group is going to be the main route of communication, but soon findarotation.com will be open and available as well as our mobile app. So do keep in touch, save those, bookmark those, come and join us on Facebook or other social media, and we will work to help connect you with preceptors now.